Hey friends, welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. We believe that you were made for God's mission. We encourage you to check out our website, highlandcc.org, where you can learn more about what you are called to in Christ Jesus. Let's hear a message today that we hope will challenge, encourage you, and ultimately help you to grow and identify your purpose in the plan of God. Hey church, this morning you're going to hear from my dad. I've been looking forward to this day for a long time. My dad is the preacher who formed me, but he's not only the preacher that I listened to growing up, the preacher who grew my faith, he's also been the best dad I could have ever asked for. He used to read to me every night before bed. You know what he read to me? C.S. Lewis. He never missed one of my baseball games. He taught me how to climb mountains and to fish in rivers. He taught me how to love a woman, your wife, really well, and somehow to love God even more. Every morning when I woke up before school, I would look down over the banister of the stairs and I would see my dad sitting beside the lamp reading the Word of God every single morning. My dad formed in me the love for the Lord that I still have today, and I am so thankful that you're going to get to hear from him this morning. He's going to talk to us about what it means when Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth. I'll be back next week, and I look forward to being with you then. Here's my dad. You know, I had the best story prepared to tell on Eric this morning, but after that intro, I can't tell it now. I would like to, to call attention to the fact that you may have noticed when I came in, I came in plenty early in a timely fashion to be up here. My son Eric didn't think I could do that, and he... He mentioned several times, Dad, you got to be in there on time, got to be there on time. I just hope you'll mention that to him, but I can do it when I want to. You know, it's, it's um, a great privilege. And now you know where he gets it. When Eric and his sister Megan were children, uh, one of their favorite series of books other than C.S. Lewis were the Little House books by Laura Ingalls Wilder. And I'm sure you remember the TV series Little House on the Prairie. That was the, based on the second book in the series. The first book in the series is Little House in the Big Woods. It tells the story of Laura's family as they lived in Wisconsin before they moved to the prairie. And here's an excerpt from that book. One morning, Paul went went away before daylight with the horses and the wagon, and that night he came home with a wagon load of fish. The big wagon box was piled full, and some of the fish were as big as Laura. Paul had gone to Lake Pepin and caught all of them with a net. Ma cut large slices of flaky white fish without one bone for Laura, and Mary, and they all feasted on the good, fresh fish. It was so tasty, Laura wished they could eat it all. But most of the fish must be salted down in barrels for the winter. For winter was coming, the days were shorter, and frost crawled up the window panes at night. Soon the snow would come, then the log house would be almost buried in snowdrifts. And the lake and the streams would freeze, and in the bitter cold, Paul could not be sure of finding any food to eat. So as much food as possible 
must be stored away in the little house before winter. Now, I share that story to remind some of us and enlighten the rest of us that refrigerators and freezers have not always been available. Not that many years ago, it was a real challenge to keep perishables fresh, like meat and vegetables and dairy products. Vegetables could be kept more or less fresh if stored in a cool, dry place. Meat and fish, for example, had to be either salted or smoked in order to keep it for any long period of time. When meat is properly cured with salt, it can last a long time. Otherwise, it rots quickly. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus used this practice of curing meat with salt to teach us one of our purposes as disciples, and that is we are to be salt to an unbelieving world. That purpose is desperately needed by the world because without salt, the world will rot. Let's take a look at Matthew 5.13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. The more I study the teachings of Jesus, the more convinced I am that He was the master of using day-to-day experiences to teach spiritual truths. And that's the case here. When Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, He was referring to a common practice in Palestine, especially in the area where the sermon was preached. It was preached near the Sea of Galilee, and the traditional site is a hillside that overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And for the people who lived in that area especially, fish was a big part of their diet. Remember that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were commercial fishermen. And so when they brought in a catch of fish, some of it would be sold fresh in the marketplace, but the rest of it would need to be salted down so that it would be preserved to eat later. And many of you know my wife, Lynn, and Eric's mom, she is a writer. And when she was researching her first book, she learned that there was a very big commercial industry around the Sea of Galilee, which took the fish that were caught, salted them down into barrels, and then shipped them all over the Roman Empire. Without salt, without lots of salt, that industry could not have existed. Salt was thus an extremely valuable commodity in the ancient world. And so when Jesus used the word salt in the sermon, I understanding him to be primarily referring to the use of salt as a preservative, not as a flavoring. Now, that didn't rule out the fact that salt that was preserved would be flavored, but his his primary reference here was to the use of salt as a preservative. And so, when Jesus said to his disciples, you are the salt of the earth, I am convinced he was saying, you are the preservative of the earth, using salt in that way. So, if he had said that today, he might have said, you're the refrigerator of the earth, You're the freezer of the earth. You're the ice chest or Yeti of the earth. You're the Ziploc bag of the earth, the aluminum foil of the earth, the can of the earth. You know, none of those work for me. 
So we're just going to stick with salt of the earth today. You are the salt of the earth. And now that we understand this analogy, how does it apply to our lives? Let's break it down into three parts. First, let's think about what Jesus meant when he said the word earth. Now, he was not referring so much to planet earth, but to humans on planet earth. More specifically, he was referring to human society or culture on earth. And there are many levels of human society and culture on earth. There's Western culture, there's Eastern culture, there's American culture, there's Southern culture, there's Tennessee culture, there's Memphis culture, there's the culture that exists at our places of work, the culture that exists when, at school, that when we are with our friends, there's our culture at home. And all of these cases, the word culture refers to how human beings relate to each other, how they treat each other, the unspoken rules that they follow, and whether they are good or bad or kind or are not kind to each other. Now, by using the word earth with salt, Jesus tells us something about human culture here. He says, unless there is some kind of preserving influence, human culture will deteriorate. It will spoil. It will rot. Here's an example of fish that are not salted, that have just been thrown in that bucket and left. Appetizing, isn't it? You can imagine how that smells after a couple of days. Well, Jesus says that human culture or society, without some kind of preserving influence, it will likewise spoil. Morally, spiritually, religiously, it will deteriorate. And the way people treat each other will become rotten, just like spoiled fish. Here's a case in point. In 1880, the successful attorney and avowed agnostic George Walzer bought 2,000 acres of land in Missouri to start a unique town. It would be a town without a church where unbelievers could bring up their children without religious training, where Christians were not allowed. Advertisements for the town bragged that it was the only town of its size in the United States without a priest, preacher, church, saloon, God, Jesus, hell, or devil. The town was established. About 300 people moved there, and at first it did okay. Some Christians moved there too. Seeing the town as a fertile mission field, to their credit, Walzer forced them out of his town. And when some of those people bought land at the edge of town, Walzer built a barbed wire fence to keep Christians out of his God-free town. Five years later, most of the people that had moved there would leave, but they couldn't sell their houses. A visitor to the town in 1885 described it like this. The boast about the sobriety of the town is false. More drunken infidels can be seen in a year in the town than drunken Christians among 100 times as many church members during the same time. Swearing or profanity is the common for form of speech in the town, 
and nearly every inhabitant, old and young, swears habitually. Girls and boys swear on the streets, playground, and at home. Fully half the females swear, and a large number swear habitually. Lack of reverence for parents and lack of obedience to them is the rule. There are more people living together who have former companions living than in any other town of ten times the population. A good portion of the few books that are read are of the class that decency keeps under lock and key. In no town is slander more prevalent or the charges more vile. If one would accept what the inhabitants say about each other, he would conclude that there is a hell, including everyone in the town, and that its inhabitants are the devils. It took only a few short years for the town's unattractiveness and inconsistency to be exposed. Only five years after its establishment, nine-tenths of those now in town would leave if they could sell their property. More wealth has been lost by locating in the town than has been made in it. Hundreds have been deceived and injured and ruined financially." End quote. After the experiment failed, the town got together and started asking churches to come. It still exists today. Not too big, about 800 people, but it's full of churches. As that story illustrates, without a preserving influence, human culture will spoil. Or to use the metaphor of Jesus, without salt, the world will rot. And that brings us to the second point of Jesus in this passage. Christians are to be the salt that stops the world's rot. We are to be the preserving influence upon our culture that prevents evil from taking over. By the lives that we live, we're to make the world a better place. So how does this work? Well, consider this analogy. Some of you have had salt-cured pork. It's not that common anymore, but still it's served in places. I've had it once. I found it much too salty for my taste. But it is still the way ham, a ham is cured with salt. And I looked it up, and this is how it's done. You take a, a ham, piece of pork that's about the size of a football, you clean it up, and then you set it in a, a salt, about an inch of salt. You take a knife and cut slits in the ham down to the bone at strategic places, and then you take salt, and we're not talking about a salt shaker here, we're talking about handfuls of salt. And you take that salt and you push it into those cuts that you've made. You pack it in there all around. And then you, you pack and rub the salt into the ham all around. And so that when you're done, you have like this quarter-inch crust of salt all around the ham. And then you put it aside, not in the refrigerator. You just put it aside to cure that's the image you need to have in mind when Jesus talks about being the salt of the earth. He's not talking about a salt shaker. He's talking about rubbing amounts of salt into it. You know, sometimes when we think about the teachings of Jesus and our call to be sin sinless and holy, 
it's tempting to think if we could just move out and start our own town and get away from the sinfulness around us, it would be so much easier to live lives of faithfulness to God. Just have little monasteries. But this teaching of Jesus says, no, don't run off. Don't go and hide. No, you are to be in the world. You are to be the salt that's being rubbed into the world, into culture, into the relationships of our lives so that you are a preserving influence, so that the world is a better place as a result. Last year, I completed my dissertation and received my doctorate. Better late than never, I always say. And as part of my dissertation, I researched and wrote a chapter on the history of the virtue of charity. You know, today we take charity for granted. We have so many institutions that are charitable institutions that we give to that help people that are down and out and help people that need things. I mean, we just, it's just constant. All around us, there are all these opportunities to give. We take that impulse to help for granted, but it hasn't always been that way. Human culture did not know that impulse many years ago. For example, as I found in I researched this chapter, if you take the Greco-Roman society or culture, that was a hard and mean place to live. There were no hospitals. There were no orphanages. There were no government assistance programs. There were no stimulus checks. There was nothing like that. If you didn't have money to buy food, you starved. If you didn't have money to pay the physician, you didn't get needed medical care. Now, granted, families and friends would help as they could, but given the widespread presence of poverty, most people didn't have anything to share. It was tough. But with the arrival of Christianity, that began to change. Disciples of Jesus, motivated by the command to love one another, begin to help the poor and the Ill, Ill and those in need. One historian wrote, owing to a combination of inner motivation, discipline and effective leadership, the local Christian congregation created in the first two centuries of its, its existence, an organization that was unique in the classical world and effectively and systematically caring for its members who were suffering. That same historian concludes, there existed in the classical world no external impetus, no elevated ideal, no specific virtue of compassion. That ideal had to await the coming of Christianity. Later in the fourth century, building on the foundation of Christian charity, Basil the Great, as he is known in history, established the first hospital the first one ever known. He did so in Caesarea, which is modern-day Turkey. And actually, it wasn't just a hospital. It was this complex of caring, and the center of this complex was a church, and then around it there was an orphanage, 
There was uh, guest houses for people that had traveled to the hospital, and of course there was the hospital, and there was these, there was job training programs and all that sort of thing. It was a whole complex of caring. It was called the Basileid. Another historian writes, with his sermons, Basil encouraged the wealthy to support his social projects for the poor. His work has been called a major social revolution that challenged directly the hypocrisy, corruption, and uncontrolled self-interest of fourth century Caesarea. And this revolution, which included the world's first hospital, was based on a Christian understanding of charity, of sharing one's wealth with the poor, particularly during times of crisis. Following Basil's lead, other hospitals were established by Christians across the world. As a result, Christian uh, historians have argued that, quote, the hospital was an origin and conception, a distinctly Christian institution. The point of this history lesson, I hope, is clear. Due to their commitment to charity, disciples of Jesus became the salt that stopped the world's rot. The world became a better place to live, thanks to the Christians. You know, some other ways we can be salt, when we're with others and they start to gossip or slander about those not present, we can ask them to stop. We can do it kindly. We don't have to be arrogant about it, but we can ask them to stop or we can leave and we can send the message subtly that such actions are not acceptable. And in that way, we can be the salt that's rubbed into the world's rot. Or when we are with others and they begin to use profanity or racial slurs or other kinds of unacceptable language, we can ask them to stop. We can step away. We can do it kindly. We, we don't have to be arrogant about it. But we can send the message that such is unacceptable. And in doing so, we're being salt that's rubbed into the rot. The point is that in every way we can, we are obligated by Jesus to be salt to a decaying culture, to stop the rot that threatens human happiness and well-being. Which brings us to the third point made by Jesus in this passage. Look at it again. You're the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, what does Jesus mean here when he says, if salt loses its saltiness? You know, as many of you may know, salt is a stable compound. It cannot lose its saltiness. But salt can be contaminated by other substances. And when salt is contaminated by other substances, then it obviously loses its value as salt. When something else is mixed in with the salt, its salt is still present, maybe in there, but it's been contaminated and it doesn't have the same value. Now, here's a picture of salt being mixed with sand. How many of you would take the cup on the left side with the sand and the salt? How many of you would take that cup today at lunch and sprinkle it over your meal? Or at dinner or your steak or whatever it might be? No one. It's no good. It's ruined. It's been polluted. It's absolutely ruined. The salt is still there. 
But it's no good for its purpose, is it? Only pure salt will stop the rot. We are to be salt to a rotting world. That's our calling. But if we allow ourselves to be polluted by the world, if we allow sin in our lives, then our efforts will be futile. Our salt will be worthless. Our witness will be worthless. Instead of slowing the rot, we only add to it. And the judgment that Jesus places on such salt, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. I cannot think of a more powerful image that calls on us to keep our lives pure and free from sin. Only by doing so can we build the kingdom and make the world a better place. I was deeply saddened at the beginning of this year when the stories begin to come out about a well-known Christian apologist who had had a worldwide ministry for years. And after his death, the stories begin to come out that he had abused women in almost every place he traveled around the world. And now, his reputation, his legacy, the ministry that he left is virtually destroyed. And worse, the Christian witness has been badly damaged in the world as a result. Only pure rot, salt will stop the rot. Only pure salt. So I don't want to close on that downer. Let's go back and think about those Christians in the fourth century who built the world's first hospital. That sacrifice, that foresight, that commitment to helping others. And just think about the tradition, the hospital tradition, the hospital heritage that that has had in our world. How many people, including many of us in this room, have been blessed, our lives have been bettered, care has been given as a result of those early Christians who answered the call to charity. May that be true for us in our daily walk. Let's pray together. Lord, my request is that you encourage us and build us up in our walk as we follow you in every way and also in this way, and that you continue to bless this wonderful church and their efforts and the people here as they seek to do your will. In Jesus' name, amen.